Chapter 38 Belonging By the time she woke, night had fallen and the moon was high in the sky. Leah had a strange sense of having missed the action, but, to her relief, Dove had not wandered. She was alert, and her slender legs were cool to the touch. Clever girl, Leah whispered as she readied the mare for the next part of the journey. Here, for the first time, she deviated from her instructions. Trian had told her to ride down to the river, but clouds kept on blowing over the moon, and she was reluctant to risk her tired horse on rough ground. The she may be able to see in the dark, but I cannot, and neither can Dove, she told herself as she pulled her boots over bruised and swollen feet. They made slow progress. The ground was uneven and marshy. Several times Leah fell and came up caked with peat. She steadied herself by holding on to the stirrup as Dove walked calmly beside her, unperturbed by the owls that swooped across their path. The land flattened, as Trian said that it would, and they came to a river, wide and deep, with reeds on either side. Be careful here, Trian had told her. The shallow ford is watched. You must cross downstream. If the water is high, you may have to swim. Leah was an adequate swimmer, but the Dubberku were borderline aquatic, and when she saw the river, she thought that Trian had overestimated her strength. It was wide and dark and dangerous. The water was swift and deep. I can't do this, Leah thought. She had an abiding fear of drowning. Somewhere in the rushes, an otter barked. Leah tied the mare to a willow and walked up and down the bank in consternation. Assuming that all was well, Trian and Aid were on the other side. There was a ford upstream, but it was guarded, and any attempt to cross it would put her companions in danger. If she were captured, they would certainly come to rescue her. Leah looked at the river with deep misgivings. Her situation reminded her of a childhood story about a girl who came to a signpost, with one end pointing skywards, marked fly, and the other pointing towards the ground, marked dig. I can't fly, she told herself and I won't dig. Leah tied her garment into a very tight bundle on the highest point of the saddle. She took off her boots and felt wet mud between her toes. Then, with one hand on the reins and the other on the stirrup, she edged cautiously into running water. This is up to you, my darling, she told the mare. A new moon, still low in the sky, cast a thin glint of light onto the dark river. Otherwise it was shadows, the rippling shadows of the water, the rustling grey shadows of the reeds, and the warm dark mass of her horse. Leah was thigh-deep now, feeling the strong tug of the current and utterly terrified. The mare waded confidently forward. Then Dove, encountering some underwater obstacle, tripped and tumbled forward. For a moment she was entirely submerged. Leah clung to the stirrup, trying to avoid getting kicked or stepped on as the mare struggled to regain her foothold. Then they were swimming, 
heading bravely for the further bank. The current was purposeful and the water chillingly cold. The mare plunged. Leah closed her eyes and kicked hard. Trust the mare. At last, Dove heaved herself up on the far side of the bank and shook the water from her ears with an expression of extreme displeasure. Everything was drenched, clothes, tack and provisions. Shivering, Leah donned her wet garment. She could not bring herself to mount the trembling mare and walked beside her in what she hoped was the right direction. Trian had outlined landmarks, but none of them seemed to make sense. But Dove, although not exactly stepping out, was walking with intent. She stopped and wickered softly, ears pricked forward. Leah heard nothing, but the mare left the path, waded resolutely through a marsh and began to climb a wooded hill. Leah smelt wood smoke and, listening carefully, heard voices. She wondered briefly if they might be she from another tribe, but she was tired beyond caring. Dove had no such doubts. She broke into an eager trot and disappeared over the brow of the hill. Leah crested the hill and the camp was below her, the brothers in dispute over a small roasting pig. Cattle secured beneath the trees and her own mare greeting her old companions. There were four horses now, including a fine piebald cob that reminded her of the traveller horses in Tala. A slender hound, pewter-coloured in the moonlight, rose to its feet and barked as she stumbled down the hill. The brothers looked up briefly. Wished, said aid to the dog. Good girl, said Trian to Leah, and went back to berating his brother. It was only later that she realised that he had spoken to her as though she was one of the she. When Dove was fed and watered, Leah joined them at the fireside and hung her wet jerkin out to dry. You are cold, Aid observed, wrapping his own garment around her shoulders. We have meat and brandy. It was a good day, Trian said. You rode like a she, little red squirrel. That was done well. For once, Leah drank deep. The rough apple brandy burnt a path down her throat. Trian handed her a strip of meat, and she chewed, almost too tired to eat, as the brothers regaled each other with stories of ambush and attack. There was a fine battle at the pass, she gathered, followed by victorious pillaging. Then, Aid had returned for the cattle, while Trian diverted the sentry at the ford. They had crossed the river dry and on foot. Neither of them was injured, they said, and nobody had died. I swam, said Leah bitterly. She felt chilled to the bone. Come, Aid said, preparing his bed by the fire. You are cold. Lie down with me. Leah hesitated. Then, realising that he had no conception of her as a sexual being, she curled gratefully against him. Aid drew his garment over both of them, wrapped an arm around her and went heavily to sleep. Tired as she was, Leah lay in the arms of the snoring she as the fire died down to the embers and the horses moved through the woods behind them. A deep warmth stirred inside her and it was nothing to do with food or fire or brandy.
it is acceptance, she told herself sleepily, and realised that she was thinking in she. She searched for the word in English, but she could not find it. You have been in Ildahak for twenty-eight nights, said the glyph. They rested all the next day, although the she concept of rest included finding out if the piebald cob was broken for riding. It wasn't. And a foray by aid to the nearest settlement in search of apples without which he maintained that the roast pig was incomplete. For once, Trian declined to accompany him, saying that he could break his own stupid neck. Later, it emerged that Trian was less uninjured than he had claimed, having dislocated his shoulder in yesterday's fight. It happened, he said. As far as Leah could understand, Aid had wrenched the limb back into its socket before carrying on the fight, and the result was extensive bruising with a great deal of pain. Tell me what to do, she said, and Trian sent her into the woods in search of herbs and moss. Leah squatted by the fire and stirred, while Trian explained the art of infusion, which was pretty much the same as making tea, and the correct way to apply a poultice. She dried the moss beside the fire, soaked it in the infusion, and applied it to the injured shoulder. Trian winced. Is that too hot? It has to be hot, he said through gritted teeth. Leah looked at him, concerned. Also the back, said Trian, enjoying the attention. He leant forward so that she could press steaming moss into his shoulder from behind. Muscles rippled under his silky pelt as Leah held the poultice in place. Its pungency reminded her of the locker rooms at school. Trian lay back on a carpet of pine needles. Still tired from the previous day's adventures, Leah sat down beside him, gazing dreamily into the branches. The day was still and cloudy, but even on a dull day, Ildahach was luminous. Was my own world like this once? Leah wondered. Is it just that we never noticed? But she never remembered an overcast day so saturated with light, nor tree bark so richly textured in shades of brown and grey. Plain things seemed extraordinary in Ildahach. She wondered if this related to the perception of time. Trian reached over and touched her wrist. Stay with us. Little Red Squirrel, he said. You do not have to leave. Leah looked at him with love. The otherness of the she was beautiful to her now, and Trian was the most magnificent of the brothers, stronger than Foylon, more graceful than Aid. He raised himself on one elbow, the cooling poultice still pressed to his shoulder. His eyes were dark, unblinking gold. I have spoken to my brother, he said. If you stay, you will live with us, like one of the she. He lay back on the pine needles with a grunt of pain. Think about it. We are not far from the gateway now. Leah wondered if they had ever been far from the gateway. The she had little sense of progression in the way that humans understood it. 
Could I spend the rest of my life on the gallivant with a pair of marauding she? She asked herself, skirmishing and pillaging and roaming under the stars. Oh, yes, I could, I could. Her own world was fading. Leah struggled to bring it into focus. She thought of her warehouse on Ormond Quay with a river running below, of the homeless people and the catfish and Gary waiting on the bridge, of the shops and what was no longer in them and bright green fields where no grass would grow, of abandoned farms and leafless trees and the bones of livestock lying by the side of the road. She thought of picking up the phone to Martha and could not imagine a world where that did not exist. If I don't go back, what trace of me remains? The face of a child, forever enshrined on cheese packaging, and the creepy half-life of the Kobe shoot? And then there was lawless design, the buildings that she and Ronan had worked on together, the Soul Trader HQ with its wonderful wall of weeds, and the impenetrable machinations of Ethan Blake. She did not suppose that any of that mattered any more. She thought of the bleak bad house at Carmoyle, of John Reardon, conductor of Pathways Between the Worlds, and Kit with her forlorn ghost child and her beautiful breasts. She thought of Isola, a shadow waiting in the clearing, a beautiful broken body, she thought of her warrior daughter, Naman. She thought of the warmth of Aid's embrace and the look on Trian's face when he was telling her what to do and the mare, Dove, soft as licorice beneath her, of Fuelon, scholar and killer, and Ronan, who had never looked for or expected love. I haven't found love, she thought, but I would settle for belonging. But then she thought of her parents and the house on Mountain View Road, the looming mortgage and the saddlebags of gold that lay carelessly piled under the pine trees. She could stay in Eldahuk, but her parents would be street people. Leah turned to Trian, her hands forming the she gesture of humility and respect. I belong with you in a way that I have never belonged in my own world, and your invitation fills me with joy, she said, using the honorific. But I have a duty to my family. I must return. She rose to her feet, bowed deeply to the she, and walked off into the forest. The dog followed her and pressed itself against her legs, trembling with need. Leah could smell the city on the other side of the gateway. Human faeces with a top note of solvents and a base note of algal bloom. She had become used to breathing fresh air. You are now leaving Ildahuk, said the unseen glyph. You have been here for 32 days, 7 hours and 6 minutes. She closed her eyes, took a deep breath and stepped through onto the Hapenny Bridge. Dublin surged up to meet her in a cacophony of engine noise, car horns and abuse. The homeless people were still camped along the boardwalk, their laundry strung from the windows, 
and ad hoc constructions nestled on the roofs of buildings that had once been shops and hotels. The river was low, and giant catfish grazed on the foul-smelling growth that flourished below the tide line. Home again. Hello, Gary, said Leah. Leah, exclaimed the gatekeeper. Rapid. Gary was wearing a newish padded jacket and boots and looked as though he'd had a few square meals since she saw him last. Can't get through the gateway for free, you know. He glanced at the pair of she behind her. They're extra. Chancer, said Leah, slipping a gold coin into his outstretched palm. After all I've done for you. She glanced up at the three arched windows, which seemed to be in place. Did you keep an eye on the gaff for me? Nah, said Gary, couldn't be arsed. Got myself a new job. Leah grinned. Later. She stepped into the bookshop, just as Arthur was closing for the night. He raised his eyebrows at the sight of the two she, laden with bags of gold. You again. These are my brothers-in-law, Leah said. Be polite. So did you find him? Arthur demanded. After all that, I found him, said Leah triumphantly, safe and well. And is it true that he's turned on us? Runs in the family, you homophobic old goat. Leah leant across the counter to kiss his hairy cheek. Any chance of a cup of tea? <laughs>